Halloween is the one time of year and a rite of passage for children to stay up late and stuff themselves with as much candy as possible. And for adults to indulge in libations and play dress up just like they did as children. But for some, Halloween ended up as a day where monsters became real. I'm Jennifer Blades, and you're listening to a special Halloween edition of The Unanswered Podcast. Join me for the story of the trick-or-treat lovers and the pixie stick murders. It was Halloween night in 1957 in Sun Valley, California, a neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley situated at the base of the Verdugo Mountains. On Community Street, Betty and Peter Fabiano were woken by the sound of their doorbell. Thinking it was late-night trick-or-treaters, Peter went downstairs, grabbed the candy bowl, and answered the door. And there, he stood face-to-face with a person that was about to end his life. Former Marine Peter Fabiano met a divorcee and single mother of two named Betty in the 1940s. After the two wed in New York in 1956, they moved out west to the land of sun, fun, and movie stars. Peter became a hairstylist and opened a few flourishing LA beauty salons. The night that Peter met his unfortunate demise at the hands of a woman that pointed a gun wrapped in a paper bag at his chest and pulled the trigger. Betty heard the gunshot and a loud thud as she raced to the door to see what had happened. She discovered Peter lying in a pool of his own blood and her tires screeching as the unknown assailant drove away. It was reported that the only witness was a teenage boy who saw a car speeding away out of the otherwise quiet neighborhood at a high rate of speed. Peter was taken to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced dead from a 38 caliber gunshot wound to the chest. Police were left with few clues. No gun shells were found at the scene and it didn't appear as if this was a robbery gone wrong. Police started to think this had mob hit written all over it. Peter did have a bookmaking charge back in 1948, but as police started to look into his background, the mob theory went out the window. With no connections to organized crime and no known enemies, they were left wondering who would want this 35-year-old hairdresser and business owner dead. When police interviewed Betty, she recalled the events of the night and stated that she thought two people were at the front door. One man and another that she thought was a man trying to sound like a woman. When asked who she thought murdered her husband in cold blood, Betty gave one name, Joan Rebell. Joan was a 40-year-old writer-photographer and divorcee who was looking for work and found a job at one of Peter's salons. Joan and Betty became fast friends. When Betty and Peter started having marital problems, Betty decided to move in with Joan to give her and Peter some space. There was a lot of speculation about the nature of the two women's relationship, as it was thought that they were more than just good friends and were possibly romantically linked, which in the 1950s was more than taboo. The Los Angeles Times stated that Joan and Betty's relationship was, quote, abnormal, which could have insinuated that the two women were in a lesbian relationship. Over time, Peter and Betty decided to reconcile their broken marriage, and Betty moved back into the family's home. But there was one stipulation. 
Betty would not speak of or see Joan again. That same year, 1957, Joan met 42-year-old lab assistant Goldine Pizer. Like Joan, Goldine was divorced, and it was said that she was also gay. The two women spent over three months gossiping over coffee as Joan shared with Goldine details about a horrible, abusive man that she knew that would terrorize his wife and children and dabbled in the drug trade. Just all out scum, and what Joan described as, quote, pure evil. That man was none other than Peter Fabiano, and without hesitation, Goldine jumped at the chance to put this man in his place. Joan was able to manipulate Goldine and turned her into a hired gun. On September 21st, Joan gave Goldine the cash to purchase a gun from a Pasadena gun shop. Goldine told the salesman that she was buying the gun for home protection. A few days later, Joan took Goldine back to the shop where they picked up the gun with two bullets in it. Goldine kept the gun until Halloween night when Joan, who was able to talk another friend, Margaret Barrett, into letting her borrow her car to drive the 37 miles to commit the murder and pick her up. Goldine, who was dressed in a disguise, made her way to the front door of the Fabiano home around 11 p.m. and rang the doorbell. Betty heard Peter say, yes, and then, isn't it a little late for this? Followed by a pop and the sounds of Peter falling to the ground. Betty and her teenage daughter Judy ran to the front door where they found Peter lying on his back inside the front door. As Peter lay dying, Joan and Goldine made their way to Margaret's house where they left the car in the street and both walked back to their own homes. Before parting, Joan said, forget you ever knew me. Meanwhile, Judy ran two doors down to the neighbor's house who happened to work for the Los Angeles Police Department Valley Division. The neighbor immediately called the Valley Station and officers were there within minutes. With the clothing from that night still in her possession, Goldine decided to cut it up and burn the rest of the costume. She placed the gun in a locker where it remained until police found it a month later. One of the two bullets was still inside. With no evidence or motive at the time, detectives interviewed friends and family to see if they might have any information or clues to solve this case. A week later, a tip from a confidential source led detectives to Goldine's house where she was arrested. Goldine confessed that her friend Joan Rebell talked her into committing the murder Joan was obsessed with talking about Peter and what a horrible man he was, and that made Goldine hate him as well. With a motive in tow, police were able to arrest a jealous, love-scorned Joan. On March 11, 1958, right before the trial was scheduled to start, the pair took a plea deal for second-degree murder and were sentenced to five years to life. The public had a real issue with this deal, as it was seen as going easy on the two. Goldine was seen as meek and mousy, and the chances of a jury sentencing her to death was unlikely, even though she confessed to the murder. Both women were eventually released, and Goldine remained in the Los Angeles area. She died in 1998 at the age of 83. Joan, on the other hand, well, there was little to no trace of her after 1957. It makes you wonder if she went somewhere, assumed a new identity, and continued her destructive, manipulative behavior. Betty, Peter's widow, remarried and lived her life in Palm Desert, California until 1999,
when she died at the age of 81. Although this senseless murder was solved, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. Did Betty have a hand in Peter's murder? Did her and Joan reconnect after Joan was released from prison? Was Joan truly an obsessed, manipulative Svengali that thought with Peter out of the way she could have a chance with Betty? I guess we'll never truly know the motive behind Peter Fabiano's senseless murder. And now, the Pixie Stick Murder. It was Halloween night in 1974, and a perfectly cloudy night with light showers in Deer Park, Texas. Children filled the streets on a quest to collect as much candy as their trick-or-treat bags could hold. Eight-year-old Timothy and his five-year-old sister were no exception. Their father, Ronald Clark O'Brien, along with the neighbor, Jim Bates, and his young son, went door to door collecting a variety of yummy candy. The group made their way through the neighborhood and came upon a house that had all of its lights out. But like most hopeful children, they decided to knock on the door just in case someone would answer with a handful of candy to give them. They soon realized that no one was there and their knocking was pointless. They ran off to the next house. Jim followed and for reasons that would eventually be known, Ronald stayed behind. Shortly after, he joined the group with a handful of 21-inch pixie sticks that he said came from that dark house where no one answered. Ronald stated that the occupants ended up opening the door and that's where he got the powdered sour candy. The children wrapped up the night and headed home, ready to inspect their candy haul. Timothy and his sister were allowed one candy to eat before bedtime and Timothy chose the pixie stick. He opened it with his head tilted back ready for the sour taste to hit his mouth. Unfortunately, the powder was stuck in the tube, but Ronald came to the rescue and helped loosen it. Timothy took his first taste, but complained that it was bitter. So Ronald quickly grabbed him a glass of Kool-Aid to help with the bitter taste. Timothy drank the Kool-Aid and tried to go to bed, but he was having horrible stomach pains. Ronald told police that Timothy was crying and said, Daddy, Daddy, my stomach hurts. Ronald also stated that the child was in the bathroom convulsing, vomiting, and gasping, and that he suddenly went limp. Timothy was raised to the hospital, but sadly, after just an hour after eating that pixie stick, Timothy was dead. Luckily for the quick wit of the medical examiner, who recalled the smell of almonds coming from Timothy's mouth, which is a sign of cyanide poisoning. An autopsy was performed and it was confirmed that little Timothy had consumed enough potassium cyanide to have killed two to three adult men. Police were able to collect the other uneaten pixie sticks and determine that they were tampered with as well. Detectives had Ronald and neighbor Jim recall their steps from that night. Ronald gave conflicting reports about which house he got the tainted pixie sticks from. Ronald eventually fingered a house that he claimed gave him the sticks. The owner was arrested at his job, but had an alibi for that night. He was working, and although his wife and daughter were home and had handed out candy earlier, they turned off the lights as after they ran out of candy and went to bed. Ronald's story was starting to have a lot of holes in it, and detectives decided to take a hard look into Ronald, and what they found 
which made Timothy's murder look like it was committed not by some candy-poisoning neighbor, but by his own father. As it turned out, Ronald was in debt, and not just a little debt, a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. He struggled to keep a job, and once police found the $60,000 life insurance policy he took out on both of his kids, the motive was crystal clear. Along with the motive, Ronald's behavior was strange as well. He was taking a class at a community college and asked the instructor what was more lethal, cyanide or another type of poison. Strange questions then, but in time, it's obvious that Ronald was just doing his homework and murder 101. Ronald was arrested and in May of 1975, his wife, who insisted that she had no knowledge of Ronald's plan, testified against him in court. On June 3, 1975, and after just 46 minutes of deliberation, jurors found Ronald O'Brien guilty on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder, and he was sentenced to death. Almost 10 years later on March 31, 1984, Ronald was served his last meal of steak, fries, peas, and Boston cream pie before he met his maker by lethal injection. He was declared dead at 12.48 a.m. Hundreds of people stood outside of the Texas State Penitentiary wearing Halloween costumes and shouting, trick or treat. No doubt the acts of Ronald O'Brien changed Halloween for this Texas town forever. Thank you for listening to this special Halloween edition of the Unanswered Podcast. Join me next week for two new Halloween true crime murders. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Unanswered Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Until then, stay safe.